Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Filmmaker Jamie Boyle turns the camera on her own family when her mother and sister become dependent upon opioids. Drawing upon footage shot over 30 years, Boyle creates a poignant and timely study of the deadliest man-made epidemic in U.S. history. Anonymous Sister is an eye-opening look at what it means to suffer, to survive, and to experience life in all of its pain and beauty. This is such a beautifully rendered story on so many different levels, not the least of which is this deeply personal story of her family going through unspeakable pain and suffering, as well as the universality of it, watching someone you love go through what these people go through. The film again is called Anonymous Sister, and we're joined today by the director, Jamie Boyle. Jamie, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Normally, this would be the part of the interview I say, well, what inspired you to begin to do this documentary film? But I know from the from the film, and people will know soon enough, that you've always had a love for the camera, a love for documenting things around you. But really, in terms of the actual filming of your family in this context, was there a moment in your life when you felt like, this is what I have to do? It's funny, I have been asked that question in terms of just the generic, what inspired you to make it, which is a great question. So I've thought a lot about what was the exact instigator. And I think, you know, as it happens, there was a confluence of things that all came together at the exact right time. I happened to be in a a class in college that was teaching me how to shoot on Super 8 film, but that is all I had at my disposal. I hadn't learned digital yet or anything. And so uh, it was very doable. I was really at the end of my ropes in terms of I had contacted or my mom had helped me contact all of their doctors at that point, um, at least Jordan's to express concern about her dependence on the opioid she was being prescribed. And I was growing increasingly concerned about my mom. And it really just felt like the ground was falling out from under me and there was nothing left. There was no tools left at my disposal. And I had this camera and this audio recorder. And at that point, it felt just just like a necessity, like somebody else has to bear witness to this and there was nobody else around. So it just felt like an extra tool in my toolbox, another way to scream or to say something because nobody was listening to me and um, nobody could really hear me, but the camera offered me that. And I also feel like it gave me a level of remove from the situation that I needed. I could focus on the frame. I could focus on telling the story aside from just focusing on keeping them alive, which was driving me, you know, slightly insane. So I think it, it, it was a very necessary item in my arsenal at that moment. And I'm not sure how I would have coped or what would have happened without it. In terms of filming your family's life during this period of time and beyond and before there's it's, it's covers, as I said, over 30 years, did you ever think that, well, maybe at some point, if I show them what they look like when X is going on or that that might help? Did you see that as a possible use of it to say, mom, Jordan, this is, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, it's funny because I don't remember in like minute detail that time it was, and I've since learned that, you know, when we're undergoing extreme trauma, we often don't commit things to long-term memory. So I recall bits and pieces, but I, I've tried and tried, and I can't recall everything that I was feeling or that was motivating me, but I know that the predominant feeling was needing to show them what I was seeing, even though it was in front of them too, I needed to show it to them through my eyes. And I definitely think, you know, after we would film home movies growing up, we would always watch them. My sister is on camera like 30 times saying, can we watch this when we're done filming it? So I definitely understood it as a mirror, a mirroring device where you could see yourself more clearly or sometimes less clearly depending on, you know, a million things. But I definitely feel like I felt like if I could put it together in a way that was digestible and that didn't have all of these exterior forces and rhetoric coming in, but just laid it out in the way that I was seeing it. Because when you're living in it, there are so many different variables and different things happening and sicknesses ascribed to it that it gets very confusing and mind warping. So it was almost like I felt like I needed to lay it out. Yeah. In a way that is kind of from an outsider's perspective. So there was absolutely that element for sure. Let's talk about the impact. Let's talk about the source. So much of what this film is about opioids are a medical system, a pipeline uh, for the pharmaceutical industry into the lives of our families, and particularly about this oxycontin, oxycontin and hydrocontin, I think that's the other one. Hydrocodone, yeah. Codone, thank you. Let's just talk about that because as I think people at this point, if they aren't familiar with the idea of an opioid epidemic crisis in this country. I don't know where they've been, but let's, for the purposes of explaining the context to your family and and that. Yeah. One of the things I really wanted to do with the film, and I think a lot of work has begun pointing to this and, and laying it out in various ways, but because the news has focused so much around the newest face of this epidemic, which is fentanyl and illicit, illicit drug usage, a lot of people have not forgotten about the pharmaceutical companies because they're in the news every day with the lawsuits and such, but a lot of people either don't know that that's how we got to where we're at with illicit drug use, or they don't understand how we got from A to B. So a lot of what I wanted to do was take folks back to how this started and the timeline of when it started, how long ago it actually started to understand how those seeds were sown. You know, a lot of work has actually come out this year that's pointed to that. There was the crime of the century. I think Alex Gibney did the dope sick that I have yet to watch, but I've read the book and I'm very familiar with the story. And so as more and more started coming out about this epidemic, So for folks who haven't watched the film, I filmed my family members back in 2009, and there really wasn't a lot of information out yet about what had happened. There was some more reporting and great journalism in the Rust Belt and in West Virginia, those areas in Appalachia, but not really much in Colorado where I was and certainly not available and accessible to a a 20 year old, which I was at the time. So it wasn't in this, in the cultural rhetoric and It wasn't until I started a career in doc about completely other subjects and social issues that I started, this work started coming out, this fantastic reporting on what pharmaceutical companies had done, starting with Purdue and the Sacklers, and then quickly following them, Johnson and Johnson, 
there are aspects of Johnson and Johnson's inner workings that actually precluded Purdue's actions in 1996 that really set the tone. Um, they actually Johnson and Johnson manufactures the actual poppies that in Tasmania that Purdue then manufactured in Oxycontin. So they're all they're all in bed together. Um, but but the long and the short is a lot of pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers and distributors followed suit when they saw what Purdue was doing with Oxycontin and how successful they were. Right. And so when we say big pharma, you really do have many, many companies and big pharma involved in this, knowing how addictive these pills are, if not at the onset, definitely within two to three years, the evidence is indisputable that they knew and, you know, continue selling it. And so one thing that ended up on the cutting room floor, but that I hope makes it into some of this work was there was a congressional hearing in 2001 that was delayed because of September 11th. So it happens, I think, November, December, 2001. And you have the entire United States congressional body hearing all these stories out of Appalachia and ready to do something about it. And very quickly in the latter half of the day, Purdue takes the stand. They have a doctor up there at this time. They're a respected pharmaceutical company. They're a mom and pop, they're family run. They, you know, there's no negative connotations. And so you start to see all those narratives start turning and they're the narratives we're still hearing today. So we're still hearing that opioids do work for some instances of chronic pain, things like fibromyalgia, long-term rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. They're not, they're not good drugs for those things. And that evidence is also overwhelming, but we still hear this all the time. So anyway, that's a very long way of saying that, yeah, the more I learned, the more devastated I became. And the more I realized that those inclinations when I was 19 or 20, that something very, very bad was happening because when you're watching it happen with the most respected doctors in the state and not one or two, but four five, six of them, you think, okay, it's not just these two, it's every one of these people's patients. So then how far does this go? So while it was grim and so unsettling, it also made a lot of things finally make sense for me that I had been scratching at or, you know, just that had really unsettled me as a teenager and a young adult. So yeah, then as a filmmaker, what can you do with that, but put it into a film? Well, I thought that you were able to weave that into your family's narrative that we get over the course of Anonymous Sister, we see the family story, and then we begin to pull back and see what you're describing. We, and I think we need to be honest about the fact that for decades and decades, I mean, you can go as far back as Coca-Cola back in the turn of the, you know, the 20th century, where addiction is a business plan, right? Cigarettes, uppers, downers, all these kind of pharmaceuticals that impact our brain have become a, an opportunity for companies to essentially build in a customer base that will stay with them until the day they die, literally, and how little is done to punish these people. Why aren't these executives in jail? I don't want to make this a screed about it beyond Donovan's sister, but why are there no pharmaceutical executives in jail? 
Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm happy for you to make it into that because I think that narrative needs to get out there. And if this film can be a vehicle to help with that, all the better, you know, in terms of that, the, the, the regulatory bodies aside from the justice system that should be functioning in a much different way right now, but the regulatory bodies, the FDA that approved it, you know, everybody says, well, the revolving door, the revolving door. It's like, this is just a phrase that we throw around now and we accept as part of our governing systems. And if you told that to a five-year-old, they would go, well, that couldn't work. How could, how could that ever work to protect the health and well-being of the citizens? And the answer is it can't. That's the feature, not the bug, right? That is the exactly. feature. Yeah. That's how it works. And so, you know, you have people like Curtis Wright, who, 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 who was head of the FDA when they approved Oxycontin in 96. And within a handful of years, he's working for Purdue. And that's just one of dozens of those instances. So, and actually when you bring up earlier in the, in the um, 20th century, the Sacklers, I can't help but feel like they, you know, a lot of people say, well, maybe they knew, maybe they didn't because we don't have evidence that they knew, but the grandfather of the Sacklers was in charge of marketing Librium and Valium in the sixties and helped create that problem. So you can't help but feel like this was not a foreign concept to them at all. They didn't stumble into this unknowingly. It is shocking, literally shocking that the Sackler, that most of the executive part of the uh, Sackler family is not in prison. And it is a matter of power and wealth and all of that. And the revolving door that you're describing is what they also call regulatory capture by an industry. And it's not just pharmaceuticals. It's across the board of the things that we need to regulate are more often than not, especially now, it's gotten worse over the years, are essentially the people who are in charge of businesses are now in charge of regulating those businesses. And it's, so you're right, it's, it's a formula for disaster. But I want to talk about Jordan and I want to talk about your mom, because the early footage that we see in Anonymous Sister has to do with just this kind of wild energy. I have three sisters. They're all younger. I've seen exactly what I saw in your film. You know, they were only a couple of years apart and you see that kind of energy and positivity and just, it's, I don't know how to describe it unless you, unless you've been around uh, your sisters, like, like you have been such a loving and, and unfiltered <clears throat> look at your family and how and how just how wonderful you really have a wonderful family. They were all I mean, you could tell from this family outings, the backyard barbecues, all that stuff. It's just that you have all of the the ingredients of what you would want in a great family. And especially Jordan and you, the two of you together. It's just I don't know. I don't have a question. I just want to say. Yeah. Part of the film. I mean, she's like the other half of me. I think anybody with a, a sibling or especially sisters, I've heard a lot of people with sisters or as a sister themselves say that they have that they know exactly, they so identify with all of those moments. And that's why it was important for me to keep them in there. I think I was worried about not introducing the conflict for a little bit, which is why the beginning starts like it does. It seems like it's paid off in spades because people really identify with that. And that's what I wanted to do. There's so much of our backstory, obviously, that's not in there and of our family dynamics, of course, but I really wanted to highlight that closeness. I mean, we are an insanely close foursome, maybe too close at times. I don't know. Families are funny that way. I needed to make that clear so people understood 
how, how it felt to have that fall apart and to feel so distant from her. And, and for a couple of reasons, I mean, first I will just say that, you know, it was important to me because I think we don't often get to see this full scope of substance use before right. who the person was before, who they were after, and really a whole view of them before, not just in little clips. So, you know, I dedicated this chunk of the movie and then other parts throughout to to really Jordan before that time and us before that time. So that was really important to me just to understand substance use in that way and put a human face behind it in a way more than just at the time that they're using. Cause I feel like that's the time that gets covered a lot. And it makes sense because that is the worst of the worst. You have nothing to hold that up against. And then the other reason is, yeah, just for people to understand how unbelievably close we were and, and how much those drugs like pulled us apart. And I remember one time it's not in the film, but her saying to me, she was standing in front of me, just sobbing and saying, and this was during her time of using. And she just said, you don't, I don't feel like I'm connecting with you anymore. I just don't feel like you care anymore. And I remember just looking at her and going, I don't, I just didn't feel her anymore. And it was so upsetting to me. And looking back, it's so upsetting to me. I had just turned off. I had completely turned off at that point. It was like, I was untouchable because I had been so sad that it's like my system couldn't take it anymore. And I think that probably happens to a lot of people. And that is how people in the throes of substance use end up so isolated. It's just, it's such an insidious way that it, it worsens because everything that's contributing to it is also contributing to, it's just a vicious cycle. Um, it's also, it's, it, you're making it worse, but you're only, but it's kind of the only human reaction you could possibly have to it and the, and preserve any semblance of your psyche. So, but it gets worse in that process. Yeah. So yeah, it's nearly impossible to combat and the folks out there who are, or who are trying or who have just my whole heart goes out to them. There's so much about what you just said. I, I you know, I'm encouraged on on some levels by the research that's been done is being done, the therapies that are being put in place, um, the kind of non-pharmaceutical answers for people who are dealing with addiction. Um, there's a couple of people out there that are doing the traumatic impact of, of, of uh, addiction, family dynamics that contribute to it. A guy named uh, Gabor Mate, who's doing a lot of work in terms of trauma and how that how that changes the brain chemistry and how that can open up people to becoming you know addicted to pharmaceuticals oh, it's a lot of great work that's being done it's encouraging but for the people who are going through it right now and the people who have gone through it that's a small comfort but anonymous sister can only help but make people more aware of the you know the struggles and and hopefully the opportunity to uh, come to grips with it. It's uh, it's just a really wonderful, and it's uh, it's so emotionally compelling. I, I just really want people to understand that this is told from such a loving point of view, and the whole family. I mean, they're the fact that they were so open to talk to you about it, so open about being honest in varying degrees of what was happening, when it was happening. All those things are just very, very much um, something that you will want to embrace if you see anonymous sister. So. How can people website wise or how can we get people to to you? So 
we're working now on distribution and finding distribution for it. And our website, anonymoussister.com, we're going to keep that very updated social media. There's social media handles on there. You can join our mailing list and we're going to keep it all updated. So, so folks can be directed to the right place. I would say a lot of festivals are doing hybrid virtual now. So hopefully upcoming festivals in the short term, and then a bigger, a bigger distribution we're hoping for in the long term. And I will just say, um, because you gave me the opportunity and you mentioned it. Yeah. I mean, my family, people have thanked me for making this film and I, I really, of, of course, appreciate that. It's wonderful. But them sitting down and telling their story and not just my mom, my mom and sister who went through it, but my dad, who was patriarch of this family and who sees himself as, you know, protecting his girls. And, you know, he's very old fashioned in that way, but, you know, a protector of his whole family is the oldest member. He had to really like, all of them came to the table with so much love and so much openness to and trust in me to to share that story and to tell that story. So, and you know, I hide behind the camera whenever possible. And, you know, there was intention behind that, of course, but at the same time, it was self-preservation, I'm sure. So the film is is for them and and because of them, because they were willing to do that. And I, I hope that family members get a lot of comfort in that because I, I know that's why that's why they did it. It's terrific work. So um, yeah, Jamie Boyle, thank you. Thank you for being here today on Film School Radio and all the best moving forward. So people can go to anonymoussister.com and that will plug you in there and then be looking for it, period. So not only is it a wonderful piece of cinema in terms of the story told, but the way you told it, uh, as I said to you off camera before I started, there's so many cinematic flourishes, if you will, that keep the film visually really compelling and interesting to watch. So congratulations all the way around, Jamie Boyle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 